Coming up next on Contemplate. What I can promise you is this. If you will follow him and build your faith and understand the truth that he understood to the level that Stephen understood it, to believe, to have conviction, then no matter what you face, you will have peace. Welcome to Contemplate, a Bible teaching ministry of Pastor David Robinson and brought to you by Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington. Stephen was a deacon or helper in the early church, filled with faith and power. But some people got jealous and falsely accused him, bringing him to trial. And in Acts 7, verse 35, we'll continue to hear Stephen's defense pointing them to Jesus. Here's Pastor David. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Again, they rejected him, but he was their deliverer. First rejected, comes back 40 years later because God's going to send him back, and delivers. This is another type here. We see a Jesus type again, and we see that what he's saying, the fathers rejected the one who had come to deliver them. The fathers rejected the one that had come to deliver them, okay? That's Moses in this case. It was Joseph earlier. Let's keep going. 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Moses is talking about Jesus. Now he's bringing this prophecy up that Moses makes about Jesus. Another person like me. In what way? That's rejected. That's then accepted. Right? So they said he blasphemed against Moses. He's venerating Moses. Moses, he's he's talking really well about Moses. He's saying really nice things about Moses. So the idea that he had been blaspheming Moses is obviously untrue. But he's also showing that Moses himself had prophesied the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. So he's showing them both of these things. He talks about Moses doing signs and wonders, right? Like Jesus did signs and wonders. Like Stephen, through the power of the Holy Spirit, did signs and wonders. He's bringing all these things up, right? He's making this argument. And here we go, verse 38. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness... With the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. The living oracles. He's referring to the law. They said he's blaspheming the law, but he wasn't blaspheming the law. He's calling the law the living oracles. He's saying this was given to us. These are living oracles. He's venerating the law. So once again, showing that the accusations that they're making against him are not true. Whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying, Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your God, Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So he's bringing this up. Listen, 
Moses goes away for a minute, and once again, the hearts of the people turn away from God and toward idols. And he's making a suggestion here about, remember, all of this is an insinuation. He's making a suggestion about the people who are judging him right now, about where their hearts are. Are they towards God, or are their hearts turned back towards Egypt? Are they towards the things of the world? Are they making an idol out of the temple? Are they making an idol out of their own offices, out of their own uh, power within Israel? He's making this point to them, okay? Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers having received it in turn also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. However... The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? All right. So he's now once again, he's saying, look, the temple's great. Okay? I don't think he's saying Solomon shouldn't have built the temple or the temple's not a good thing because God is everywhere or something like that. I think he's venerating the temple for what it is. This place that Israel um, built to be the place where they did their traditions, these traditions that a lot of them were, were pre-shadowing Christ and, and showing um, the sacrificial system to understand redemption and salvation of the kingdom of God, this, the temple's good. It's great. But Stephen's point is, hey, listen, God does not live in that house only. Remember, the temple's going to get destroyed in a few years. God did not become homeless. He's not homeless right now. God is not without a home because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. God will not be without a home when we leave this building, okay? God can be wherever he wants to be and is, in fact, in all places. Heaven is his home. The earth is his footstool. He's saying, listen, don't venerate this temple so much and make an idol out of it. Don't put God in a box and think that you're the ones who own him and so that you get to do whatever you want to do. And now Stephen is about to bring it home. And so, again, think of this. He's here. He's in front of these, all these accusers and these 71 men in the great Sanhedrin who have the ability to pass judgment on him. He's just given this, what we're going to call this sermon of insinuation, suggesting that these guys are the negative guys in the story the whole time. And now he's going to be very direct rather than insinuating. And I want you to understand that when, to have the kind of power to do that in front of all these people... To have the kind of power to call these people to account in the way that he did can only be something that you could do in the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Okay, I'm not sure what he was expecting here, but uh, it's not going to be good. We'll get get to that in a second. Once again, you see he venerates the law. Says they received it by by angels. In other words, this the law is of God. You've got it. But guess what? It points to Jesus. And consistently throughout history, those who have been in power have always persecuted and killed the prophets who came to tell the truth and to talk about Jesus. And guess what? You're the same thing. When he says you stiff-necked people, they knew exactly what he's talking about. Because that's how God referred to rebellious Israel. 
as stiff-necked. He said, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. In other words, you're willing to cut up your body. For those of you who know what circumcision is, for those of you who don't, Google it. Um, you're willing to cut up your body, but your heart, your heart, that thing, that thing that where, where it really matters, what you're thinking, your inmost, that's not circumcised. That's not set apart to God. That's selfishness. And your ears, you're unwilling to hear what God is telling you. Jesus was here. The Son of God was here on earth speaking. These men had every opportunity to hear it, but they didn't. And he makes a point of what they did. They betrayed him and murdered him. This is, what, this is the accusation. So Stephen's here to be accused, to defend himself, which he does brilliantly and shows. I'm not saying anything negative about the temple. I'm not saying anything negative about Moses. I'm not saying anything negative about the law. I'm not here to cause you trouble in that way. He does that perfectly, but he doesn't stop there. He brings it and turns the tables back, okay? With the power of one guy against all the leaders of Jerusalem, right, of the Jewish people, he comes back and once again, as we've seen before, accuses them of the betrayal and murder of God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He accuses them. Let's see how they react to it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Okay, that sounds kind of weird, gnashed with your teeth, but cut to the heart. We've actually heard this term before when some people got angry. It, it literally, it, it denotes the idea of being sawn in two. These guys were beside themselves, which I guess you'd be if you were sawn in two. You'd be beside yourself. Don't, don't worry about that. Think about that later. Put that one in your pocket. Pull it out later. It's going to be good. But they were beside themselves. They were perplexed. They were upset. They were frustrated. They were angry. They, they were, you know, emotionally, they were no longer in control. They were cut to the heart. And it says they gnashed their teeth. And this is uh, uh, something that would go on when someone was, was fully enraged and angry, the idea of gnashing your teeth at somebody. That's what he's seeing. So he's sitting there, he said these things, and as soon as he says it, he sees this reaction that happens in these men. They're cut to the heart. They lose control. I don't know if you've ever been around somebody who got so angry that they lost control, but that's all these dudes in this place lose control as soon as he makes this accusation against them, and they literally start gnashing their teeth at him. And it says, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Remember this, at the beginning he said, he started his sermon with the God of glory. And at the end of his sermon here, he sees the glory of God. Sees the glory of God. And Jesus standing, standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, Stephen's about to die. Okay, he's about, it's about to go down here. And before he does, he's, he's given this vision where the heavens open and he sees a son of man standing at the right hand of God. Why is it important that it says standing? Because we, we know that when, after Jesus completed his ministry and his death and resurrection, he was seated at the right hand. But here he's standing. The idea here being that as Stephen is about to have these things happen to him, Jesus has literally gotten up and come to look down at his servant the first martyr of the church, the first person who will give their life to follow Jesus. This is what's going on. Jesus has stood. He stood to honor his servant. Okay, here we go. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. 
which, I mean, I don't know what that would be like if everybody said, ah, and so, you know, stops their ears up and starts running, but I'm going to be freaked out. That's what's going on here, okay? They literally, they cannot listen. Did they argue? Did they come back with counterpoint? Nope. Nope. They just started screaming and stopped their ears up and ran at him. These are not men who are in control. These are not men who are in control. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So when you execute judgment and, and you do a death sentence, you had to be taken out of the camp, in this case, out of the city, okay, to do the stoning. So they basically rush on this guy, on Stephen, get him, and they run him out of the city to a place where they're going to stone him, okay? Notice a few things about this. When we saw the apostles in front of the Sanhedrin, there was a verdict they said, step out of the room, let the adults talk for a minute. And, and then they'd talk, and they'd come back in, and they'd sort of give a verdict. We don't see that here. Okay? There was no verdict. The trial did not have an ending in that kind of a way. Instead, as soon as he makes this accusation, people lose their minds, and mob violence takes over, and he gets a summary execution. They just run at him, they take him out, and they're just going to kill him. And it says that they put their garments with Saul. Okay, Saul is Paul, the apostle. This is the first time we see him. See the apostle Paul standing, sitting there, standing there, whatever he was doing, and they lay their garments, probably take off their jackets so they can get a little freer to hug those rocks, right? Um, and that's what we see. Okay, now, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Okay, he didn't take a nap. It was a dirt nap. He's dead, okay? We see a couple things here. It says that he said, Lord Jesus. Those two words are very important. What Stephen is saying is very, very important theologically. He's saying Jesus is God. Jesus is God. For those who say, oh, in the New Testament, you know, they don't even really think Jesus is God. That's some sort of later invention. Not true. This is right at the beginning he says, Lord Jesus, it can only mean one thing, that he is saying that Jesus is God, okay? And he tells him to take his spirit, receive his spirit, which we saw Jesus do on the cross too, ask the Father to receive his spirit, right? And then he says, in a loud voice, so they can hear him, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Don't charge them with this sin. This also, Jesus said to those who, were, who murdered him. The last little part says, now Saul was consenting to his death. This is going to become important as we come to know Paul. This moment, the first person killed, the first martyr of the church, that Saul was there consenting to the death of Stephen will be important in Paul's story. Okay, it'll become important because you're going to realize that Paul was someone who literally was willing to kill those who followed Christ prior to Christ getting a hold of them. So we have Stephen here and we have him forgiving his enemies as they're murdering him. That's not something people do a lot, okay? There's a couple things that have to be true here. You have to absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, believe and be convicted about the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that you will too, that you're gonna be with Jesus. Otherwise, you want justice for your murderers, right? Not forgiveness, but that he had a heart to love those people, his people, even while they were being his enemies, is whose heart? It's Christ's heart. 
that he loves us even as we are his enemies, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we became perfect and he said, okay, I'll come down. Now that you're really good, I'll come down and pay the price for you. It's while we were sinners. And here, these people who are sinning against Stephen, Stephen shows that the Holy Spirit is indeed in him because the heart of God is to love them even when they are his enemies. And so we know that Stephen was fully convinced and we know that he loved with the heart of Christ. Why did he die? This guy, from what I can tell, has basically just started an incredibly powerful ministry. An incredibly powerful ministry. I mean, signs and wonders, the power of the Holy Spirit. This sermon is good. It's solid. You know, you have to, you have to realize that on the spot in these accusations for him to know the scripture that well, this guy had done some studying he knew the word he's quoting here and he's quoting there and it's perfect and he's doing this perfect insinuation of who the leaders of Israel are right now compared to who the Israelite people were in the past. All of this is going on. This guy's ready. He's primed to be the next Billy Graham. Why does God let him die? Why does God let him die? We, we wonder, why do people die young? Why do people die when we don't understand it? And yet Stephen is perfectly content with it. Because he realizes that God has a plan and that even though he set him up all this stuff and he's not going to get 30 years of effective ministry, he's going to die today and be with Jesus. First of all, he sees Jesus and he knows where he's going. He's happy about it. Second of all, he knows that God is sovereign and has a plan from long before Stephen was ever thought of by his parents to the end of the age. And that there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. Uh, Justin Martyr, who was beheaded for his faith, in 165 AD said, the more we are persecuted, the more do others in ever increasing numbers embrace the faith and become worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. Stephen's death, we will see, sparks even greater growth in the church. And we still read about it today, and it still inspires believers to stand strong in the Lord to this day. So while he might have had 30 years of effective ministry, maybe he would have had a church of 1,000 people. Instead, the story of Stephen is known by millions and millions of people, and he got to be the first one to give his life for the faith. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. I'm pretty much out of time. We got through a lot of verses, though, and let me just leave you with this. We never see at any point Stephen loses cool, Stephen loses faith, Stephen questioned God. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why are they throwing rocks at me? Why is this happening, God? I'm following you. You know, I talked about Moses and Joseph and these guys, and they got to live until, until they were old. Why am I having to die now? At this, he didn't say that. He's got the face like an angel. He's completely full of faith, and he's, his conviction is so strong. His belief in the sovereignty of God is so strong that he's able to face something that none of you have ever had to face. And yet he was completely calm. And not only calm, but able to forgive these men while it was going on. Now, I don't know how many of you know Jesus, how many of you are followers of Jesus. And I cannot promise you a life of comfort if you follow him. I cannot promise you that one day you might not be run out of the city and have people throw rocks at you. What I can promise you is this. If you will follow him and build your faith and understand the truth that he understood to the level that Stephen understood it, to believe, to have conviction, that no matter what you face, you will have peace. 
You will have joy because you will know that God has it under control and you will develop an eternal view rather than a temporal view. Why is this happening? I don't know. I don't know today, but I know that eternally it's all going to make sense and that we're here for a very short time and that it is very sad when sickness comes, when difficulty comes, when famine comes, when we're out of money, when someone who shouldn't die dies or someone dies young. And these things are difficult to understand, but that's only because we can only see like this. We've got this little window. If you can have utter conviction in God and understand the eternal story, you will have peace in your heart and you will be like Stephen, who even while the rocks were flying, was calm and got from Jesus the thing that wouldn't it be amazing to be able to get that that you get to see the heavens open up and Jesus stands for you to see what it is that his servant, this child of his who he loves, is doing for him and for his kingdom. What an honor. What an amazing honor. So do you have that peace like Stephen had in your life? You can. No matter what's going on around you, you can have peace that passes all understanding. And that can start right now, really. Just ask Jesus to forgive your sins, be the Lord of your life, and He will. And everything will be different. And if we can help you make that life-changing decision for Christ, call us at 360-885-9000. Or come see us at Axe Church this Sunday morning. Easy directions are just a click away at axechurchnw.org. Hope to meet you this Sunday and that you'll join us for our next episode here on Contemplate.